today. Uh, help us to interact with the word and that we could discover more deeply your, um, your covenant promises to us. Find us uh, responding to you, uh, your authority, your remarkable compassion and mercy. Uh, so today I pray uh, that um, you will do those things. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we uh, find ourselves in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5. And um, thank you, Keith, for, for reading. Um, and uh, it is a power struggle going on in the book of Acts. Here we have the apostles who have been preaching out in front of the temple. And the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel, do not like this. They are preaching about the risen Jesus. They are instructing the people about the, the true temple, who is Jesus. Uh, the body of Jesus is now replacing uh, that temple. That was the second temple that was built. It was built after um, what was called the Babylonian captivity. Uh, in the 530s BC, it was uh, constructed and uh, put together. Um, the first one was torn down and destroyed by the Babylonians. That was the one that Solomon built. So this is the second temple, and uh, those stones uh, can be still found in Jerusalem. I've never been there, but uh, those are uh, those are considered quite quite remarkable and and sacred today. So the stones of uh, of that temple uh, were eventually knocked down uh, by the Romans in 70 A.D. So we're in this transitionary period. Uh, the early church is forming. We are still in Jerusalem. There have not been any venturing out in fulfilling the Great Commission into going into all the world. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, it takes some convincing of the, the believers in Jerusalem that they really are going to go out into the outer regions and reach non-Jews. That's going to be a big transition up, and it's coming up, and uh, that's on, uh, around the corner here in the book of Acts. So, a prominent feature, a prominent feature of Israel's history, culture, traditions is that temple. And uh, as long as it's there, uh, it will overshadow uh, uh, any other attempts, really, to, uh, to, uh, to change things. Of course, God... God is able, through the preaching of the word, to bring people to understand and to believe in Jesus. And, of course, we see the church growing. So um, I grew up in a town called Redlands, uh, Southern California. Um, and our town uh, had uh, an architectural feature. The architectural feature was the A.K. Smiley Library, which was built in 1898. or eight, oh, 1889, sorry. And... This, uh, this, this library was unique because it had um, an architectural style called Moorish Revival. And uh, the Moors were an Arab people from uh, North Africa, uh, known as Is- Islam, Islamic uh, followers of, of Allah. And so the Moorish architecture was borrowed, and so it had a very unique situation, unique look. The the library had a dome, kind of looked like our Capitol building, uh, and it was a beautiful tiled, white and blue tiled dome. And uh, 
Now, I, I remember that library mostly because I learned that librarians were serious about being quiet. And uh, I found the door a couple of times. Uh, but um, the Smiley Library was so influential in its design that the post office in the 1930s was designed, and it's just down the street, and it too has a dome Moorish Revival architecture. Well, in 1997, uh, someone came up with the idea of building a big theater, a big movie place. And since it was going to be such a prominent building in Redlands, the City Fathers required uh, that building to be Moorish Revival uh, architecture. And so from Highway 10, you can see three domes in, in Redlands, and it really is quite beautiful. And uh, I've always thought about how influential that 1889 building, a.k.a. Smiley Library, has influenced uh, the look and shape of, of that Southern California town, Redlands. And it's hard when a culture has set in uh, to change the look of things. And uh, the book of Acts is about that transition of the change of, of the look of things. And the passage we're looking at here is uh, very simple in its flow, and it's probably one of those texts that you might even overlook or just sort of not think there's that, that much to it. Uh, it's an ongoing or developing conflict with the apostles and the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of, of Israel, the, the 70 uh, men, uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, and, and some other uh, scholarly types who were the city fathers. And so this is the second arrest of the, uh, of the apostles. Um, we're not really sure how many were arrested. It seems to indicate that all of them were arrested. Um, later in Acts 5, it's, uh, Peter is the, the spokesperson once again. And so they are arrested because they are attracting large crowds and the high priest his name was Annas, uh, he is jealous, and he infects all of the Sadducees uh, with his jealousy, and um, they send to have these apostles imprisoned. So it's the second imprisonment of the, uh, of the leadership of the church, and uh, they're trying to fix uh, a problem. The problem is the status quo, the problem is the established culture, the, the, the problem is uh, that the high priest and the Sadducees in particular are seeing their temple attendance probably diminish, and they're now concerned about their own followership. And so it is jealousy that is motivating them to throw the apostles in, in jail the, pa the passage really highlights and contrasts different motivations. The high priest is motivated by jealousy, and he hopes that if he get rid of the apostles, he will gain the people's esteem again. He needs followers in a very desperate way. His religion has no power beyond really what the Scripture calls the flesh, and so he's acting out of the flesh to to do his will. 
and they have lost power over the people of God, the people who are following Jesus, who have been hearing the proclamation that Jesus is king, and they are receiving the grace of God. And so from their hearts comes a form of manipulation, and they use shame as a technique to keep the apostles in their place. They are falsely imprisoned, uh, and they, the prison functions as a place of shame. It's noted here, and Luke reminds us, that it was a sort of a public prison, so there would be sort of a, almost a public display. People would know that the apostles are, are being shamed by being put in prison. The apostles are facing this attempt to shame them. Imagine a religious authority, religious authorities using manipulation and shame to to keep people in line. Well, the history of the church, um, that has happened. But what happens here is there's a supernatural encouragement that God provides through the agency of an angel. And the language here is actually this angel is quite a remarkably powerful angel. We're not sure which one. But the angel comes and speaks to them, releasing them from prison and encourages them, keep going, keep preaching the message of this life. And so they respond early morning, daybreak. They are back at the temple in the morning. And... uh, they are encouraged to keep going. So it's a contrast of motivations, isn't it? It's an encouragement from God to keep, keep moving and growing in the grace and responding to the grace of God. Keep believing in the goodness of God, that God is with you and that you are doing good and it is right that you preach. Do not be bound in conscience by the shaming techniques of these religious leaders. It's a battle of what authority will they listen to? What authority will they listen to? And as I was looking at this passage, I began to notice how often in the epistles we are reminded that Jesus has a remarkable status in the world. That it is impossible to read the epistles, I think in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, it is impossible to read these epistles without being reminded that this son of God ascended and he is now king, prophet, and priest over God's people. And this is how God's people are encouraged. This is how we are reminded to keep going in the Christian life. Colossians 1.17, listen to this. Speaking of Jesus, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Colossians. The people who lived in this area needed an exalted Christology in order to live the Christian life. And uh, I'm, I'm struck by how profound is the Christology of the New Testament. That there is a king who oversees his church in a mighty way. And he's in, he is in the process of reconciling all things to himself, not just our own personal salvation, but all things, the whole cosmos. Everything that has been affected by sin will ultimately be brought together because of Jesus. What an encouraging message in light of the world events of this last week. And we have a contrast of this mighty, exalted King Jesus moving in his people by, by sheer grace and encouragement of an angelic messenger. We have that con- the contrast to the tiny heart of the high priest. Filled with petty jealousy. This contrast increases when you sense the largeness of of the heart of the apostles as God begins to send them messages and send them evidence that that the kingdom of Jesus is to expand beyond Jerusalem. You see, apostasy has gripped the heart of Israel's religious leaders. And it, is, it has manifested itself or culminated in the death of Jesus. It sort of sealed the deal. It confirmed their hardness of heart. Shame was really the motivation to crucify Jesus. And so we have this war going on between who will move, who will have authority, and who will have real influence on the land and in people's hearts. Will the desire of that tiny heart of the high priest, will that rule the day? Will he get everyone back in line? Or will the heart of Jesus rule the day? Shame is a real issue in our day, isn't it? Shame is a real motivation behind suicide bombers. The only way they can truly prove they are worth something to their religion or God is by destroying their own lives and others in the process. Some have studied this phenomenon in our day and realized that not a few of them are considered losers and failures in society. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt relates to things we have done or perhaps failed to do. 
Shame is much more about who you are. Shame is a sense of that you don't belong. Religious people, if you've been around religious people, they send out a vibe. I, I, I grew up with some of this. You're not really sure if you belong. You're not really sure if you've said the right things. Religious people, I would, I would suggest, are desperate for the approval of others. They're not free. Peter is a case study, the Apostle Peter. He's a, he's a case study of one who lived for the approval of others. This is a power struggle for approval. You don't get to preach anything unless we can authorize you, unless you, we're the teachers of Israel. See. You need our approval. And the apostles are moving straight from the approval of Jesus alone. And so Peter would learn how to transition from the approval of people, and he struggled with this, it seems like, most of his life. He would transition from the approval of people, living for their applause, living for their acclamation. He would transition from that to living based on the approval of God. And that's a, that's, a long, that's a long process. He experienced shame at the campfire on the night that Jesus experienced his trials. Everyone's he's warming themselves. And young, young girls says, hey, you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, you're, you're one of his. You're associated with this, with this person. And Peter caves because he lived based upon the acceptance of people. And there's a great deal to be said about this in the Christian life, making progress in the Christian life. This is a significant area of freedom that we need to explore his deep need was to find the approval from others to fit in to be seen as okay a great resource when people are big and god is small ed welsh christian counselor highly recommend it parents raising your children great great resource His deep need to find approval from others, to fit in, to, to be seen as okay. Think about what, think of, think of the, cultural, the cultural messages we get on that whole idea of being okay. To be okay at that night around the campfire, to be okay, to be okay, Peter denied his friend. He betrayed a friendship. He denied that he even knew Jesus. 
Jesus was a stranger to him. Do you think this is a powerful urge inside of us? Am I, I'm feeling really lonely up here. Yet in the book of Acts, in this book, we see a different Peter. There's some gospel hope here, folks. This is a real threat. This is real. This is real. Prison's real. By the way, these, these folks can work the system such that they can kill people. This is real. And you don't stand out in front of the temple and say it's had its purpose and now it doesn't have any purpose. <laughs> you know, you, you just, you, uh, it's too much of a shock. And the angel says, no, do it. Preach it. John Newton, the former slave trader, early 1800s, experienced the grace of God. He writes in 1807, how, a beautiful hymn, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, it heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Now, we're contrasting the motivations of the high priest and the motivations of the apostle. Is that name sweet to you? Is that name sweet to you? Is it driving away your fears? When there exists in the heart a knowledge of someone as a friend, something's very different. You can respect your boss at work, but if you perceive him as him or her as a friend, that's different, isn't it? There's a, there's a remarkable change that happened right there. You can respect him. You can do work for her. You can, whatever you need to do, you can do it. But if they are a friend of yours, that means that they have given to you sacrificially. They have spent time with you beyond the job description. They have invested in you. It has cost them something. They are interested in you. They are want your well-being. They've gone above and beyond. If they are your friend and they've spoken to some need in your life and addressed it, that's really different, isn't it? It's remarkable. I've said this before. One of the great subjects Jesus brings up at the, toward the end of his life is that I call you my friends. I've revealed everything that the Father has told me. I haven't kept you in the dark as if you were, you, you were uh, my servants. Friendship is one of the great final subjects of Jesus. And so as they obey the angel, as they listen to the, obey, to the angel, do they do it out of sheer duty? Is it a burden to them? Is there an obligation to them to preach Jesus? That's a loser deal if you've got a preacher who's just up there, got to do it because they're obligated. Like, that's a loser deal, right? Well, what has this friend Jesus done? He's brought us 
who feel shame. He's brought us who feel like we don't belong. He's brought us who feel like we haven't done enough. He's brought us who feel that we can't ever be an insider. He's brought us. He's brought us in. He doesn't, doesn't keep us at arm's length distance. He brings us in. And he brings us in knowing all our faults. Brings us in knowing all our failures. He brings us in. He says, oh, he's coming after you. All of you. The hidden you. The hidden, the, the you you want to not show others. He's coming after that. He's coming after you. When, when, when Jesus restores Peter on the beach at the end of John, the Gospel of John. He asks him, do you love me, Peter? What is that about? Do you love me, Peter? Peter, do you know that I am after you as a person? All of you. There's nothing about you that I reject. Is my love for you inadequate, Peter? And he had to say, you know I love you. So when, when... God will always be transcendent. God will always be exalted. God will always be holy. God will always be worshipped. God will never be our buddy. But through the Son of God, His face is shining upon us. The great Levitical blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord cause His what to shine upon you? His face And that's where, that's where it all happens. That's where you see the person. You could look at my toe all day long. You'll never get to know me. Look at my face. There he is. I can see him. Okay? And I can see you. Isn't it funny? It's a funny way, isn't it? Our faces. Our faces are remarkably important. And if a person doesn't look at you, you don't exist. And so God, shine your face on me. And bless me. Smile on me. See, what, what, what's, what's the angel saying? Keep going. Of course, you have God's smile. You have God's smile on you. And when we're up against shame, you're going to need to have a really, really wonderful face to look at besides the one who's giving you scorn. You're going to have to have a face that's more important. The angel says, keep going. Keep proclaiming this life. The message is not, is God is not ashamed of you. Live based upon these remarkable truths. God has his benediction resting upon you, brothers and sisters. You're beloved. You are accepted. Keep going. Deuteronomy 33, verse 12 says this, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him. For he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Jeremiah 31, 3, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthians what is explained to them, what is the motivation of gospel preaching. 
It is the love of Christ compelling those who proclaim the love of God. Proverbs tells us that there is a friend who is closer than a brother. I just, I'm, uh, I'm just caught up in this thought that you would grow in deep intimacy and closeness with God. I don't know if you've ever been around uh, religious folks who hold a distant view of God. They may have a good theology, but in practice, it's just God is, is irrelevant and not involved in, in, in my day-to-day struggle. And again, notice the quick response. Notice the willingness to go right back to the temple and continue on. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. We need supernatural encouragements. And uh, I can't produce an angel this morning. But you know, we believe that God is intervening in our world. And he's intervening in, in his church. And he has given you the means of grace. Preaching the Lord's Supper. Prayer, fellowship, scripture. He's given you supernatural Grace for the struggle against shame. Supernatural grace for the struggle against shame. You, you may not hear this from anyone. Maybe the shame messages come from within you. Again, there's something about my body. There's something about my personality. There's something about me. I just feel so inadequate, and I would never, ever want to be vulnerable or let this be known. And so really the functioning authority in our life is really how we feel about ourselves. And what we need, though, is God to speak powerfully to our conscience. As the, as the apostles stood there on the, in the outer courts of the temple their definition, their identity, who they were, had to be connected with the promises above. And it's, very, it's, it's identical for us. God has given us motivational change or power to change and to resist shame and to resist even these inner voices. He has given us our prophet Jesus who speaks to us through his word. He's given us our priest Jesus who is interceding even right now. And he's given us our king who is ruling over all the details of our life. No religious body of leaders can do that. No Religious building could ever calm your conscience. No approval of people could ever make you blameless before God. No government, no political leader, no boss could ever reconcile you to God. No wife or husband can ever save you like the gospel can. We were alienated and hostile in mind, Colossians 1.21.
We were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh. He's reconciled us in order to present you. Listen, listen to Colossians. In order to present you holy and blameless. Is God not speaking to shame? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Brothers and sisters, this is great stuff. This is gospel-empowered, transformational change that is possible for us to live in and to trust in day after day. No one else can provide this for us. We need to be stable and steadfast as we respond in love and obedience to our God. This is the word above all earthly powers that Martin Luther speaks about in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The word above all earthly powers is the word of the gospel. The word of the gospel comes to us today to deliver us from all the shaming, from all the voices that function as authorities over us. May he convince you that his face shines upon you. Let's pray. Father, turn your face to us. We know that through Jesus you have reconciled us to you. Father, I pray this would not just be language and words for a Sunday morning, but I pray this would be true, that we would be convinced of your your gracious, smiling face toward us. Father, I pray you would melt our fears. Thank you again for this morning, and I pray, Lord, that we will grow, grow out of our approval-seeking of others. Father, it's wonderful to have the esteem of, of people. It's nice. But Father, help us to, to live boldly. Father, we ask, Lord, your mercy upon us. Help us to turn to you, to receive the supernatural encouragements that you provided for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.